So some of you have probably figured out by now that I am not Jim. <laughs> so if, if you're new today, if this is your first time here, you, you maybe have never seen me before, so I'll introduce myself briefly. Uh, my name is Dante. Uh, my wife and I and our family, they've been friends with Jim and Becky since they've moved back to town to uh, plant this church. And um, Jim has just uh, been kind of discipling me along the way throughout the years and giving me some opportunities to do things like this today. So I'm so thankful and grateful for that. Um, and also, uh, a perk of being a part of this church, there is a steeply discounted summer pool pass that, that you can get as a family to Jim's uh, backyard pool. So I'm a member, uh, my family's a member, so I encourage you all to join as well. <laughs> so... Um, before we enter in, I, I just want to share a, a little story that, that I think will be encouraging. Um, we've been away, like I said, traveling, as many of you have maybe been traveling during the summer here, and we were coming back on a Sunday, and I was driving, getting a little sleepy. I said, you know, let's, let's pull over, let's find a cool coffee spot, so we GPS it. We find one that looks really awesome, so we, we find the GPS, and we're like, we're moving outside of all the commercial stuff. Where are we heading here? And, and it directs us to a church. And so we're like, all right, this is weird coffee shop at a church. So we, we just kind of pursue the GPS and go with it. And um, what we found is that, yes, in fact, a coffee shop was, was in the church. And, and the church was going on because it was Sunday, so we had to wait and filter through all the traffic. Um, but we went in, got some coffee. It was delicious. And that's not the point of the story. Uh, the point is this. When we were driving back, we said, hey, you know, that was pretty weird to have a coffee shop at a church. Um, let's, let's check out a sermon from there. It's Sunday. We're driving. Let, let's listen. So we did. And, and the encouraging testimony that I want to share is of somebody who had a similar experience as my wife and I. Uh, there was a healthcare worker who had been a part of church while she was younger, um, but she had a very difficult um, time with her first child. Her first child was born with significant special needs um, and just required a lot of physical, emotional uh, care. And this person slowly drifted away from church. And so they're a healthcare worker. And during the pandemic, this church um, sent out little handwritten cards written by people in the congregation and a free coffee pass. And so this lady had the same experience. She was driving around trying to find the coffee shop and she found a church instead. And so, you know, she, she wanted to kind of check it out. She thought that was pretty neat as well. So moral of the story, um, this lady became active in the church. She started reading her Bible for the first time in her life. Uh, she found spiritual renewal just from one simple act of, of grace. Uh, so I, I know that God in his sovereignty does the choosing, but we don't know who's been chosen, who's not been chosen. We don't know any of that. So kind of the moral of the story is for me is sometimes just those small acts. God in his grace will use us as a help, as, as a way to kind of maybe prompt somebody to move in a direction that the Holy Spirit is already taking them. So just be encouraged by that. I've always been bad at sharing my faith because I'm afraid I don't have the right answers. I, I can't answer every theological question. So sometimes it doesn't need to be deep and profound. Sometimes it's just a simple act of love. So I, I share that to encourage y'all before we dive in today. So let us pray, and then we'll enter into the sermon today, which is going to be over Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Dear Father, I thank you for this opportunity, God. I thank you to be able to gather with these people today. I thank you that Jim has uh, entrusted me with this opportunity, God, and that your spirit would guide me 
and that we would stand on the words of Scripture today and just try to explain it as clearly as possible. God, I know I'm no expert at this field, uh, so Lord, give me grace as we move forward in today's meeting. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, so where we pick up in Ephesians, I want to do a little bit of backtracking, cover where we were last week. So we're entering into this ancient problem that has been expressed in darkness and evil throughout history in various forms of violence and oppression. So sin is always at the root. Since the fall in Genesis 3, humanity, we've been dead in our trespasses and sin. That's what last week was about, that death and sin. In, in Ephesians 2.1, we covered that. So this death does not discriminate against Gentile or Jew, for example, but applies to all races, all cultures, throughout all of time. Sin and death are pervasive, and we can look back into history and even read in current headlines to find evidence that sin has been and continues to be at work in its destructive and divisive purpose. We see many examples throughout history and in our current society where one group identifies another group as oppressed or oppressor, superior or inferior, and targets the other group as the object of discrimination, persecution, and sometimes violence. Jim has aptly titled our current study of Ephesians, The Death of Our Divisions. I love that title. This week, we are going to expand on the powerful gospel truth, where in Christ, individuals move from a position of spiritual death to spiritual life, as we read in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, and I'll read that. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We will move from applying that gospel truth from an individual level to a corporate level and see how the work of Christ reconciles our relationships and builds us into one living spiritual body. So that's kind of where we're going. That's the direction here. So let us start in 2.11. There's these two groups being uh, defined by Paul, the circumcision versus the uncircumcision. And I think it's important to just note that that Paul is writing to the Gentiles actively in this section. So I'll read 11, and then we'll get into it. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. So let's, let's set the stage. So Paul identifies the teams and the labels here. We, we could fill in the blank, this group against that group, but in this case, we're talking Gentiles and Jews, uncircumcision, circumcision. So let's just cut down to the basics. Uncircumcision in this context refers to the Gentiles, circumcision to the Jews. In these groups, males are separated by an external physical difference. So there's something obvious that that would discriminate these two groups, which in this case is is circumcision. However, this distinction is not merely about the physical differences alone, because if we remember our Old Testament, uh, circumcision pointed to a greater significance because it was a sign of the covenant. So let's read about that in Genesis 17, 9 through 11. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. 
This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring and after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So this covenant is followed by a warning in Genesis 17:14. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So Paul picks up in verse 12 of this former state of the Gentiles when we were still dead in our trespasses. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So there's a lot there. Let's, let's break that down. Paul lists here five disadvantages of the Gentiles before they were made alive in Christ. So the Gentiles were, one, separated from Christ. Two, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Three, strangers to the covenants of promise. Four, having no hope. Five, without God in the world. So that's a pretty dismal position. So the vertical relationship with God and the horizontal relationships with the people of God are completely severed in this former state. Without knowledge of God and redemption in Christ, there is no connection to the people of God, no sharing in the covenants of promise, and no hope for a future beyond the struggles of this world. The Gentiles were in a very real sense cut off and excluded from participation in the religious practices of the Jewish people, therefore having no access to the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who reveals himself to his people in the Old Testament. But we're created to worship. So while dead in sin and cut off from Jewish religious practice, the Gentiles still sought ways to connect to something greater through worship of idols and false gods, Do we still see this pattern at work, even in our day? People who have not yet been miraculously transformed by the Holy Spirit and made alive through faith in Jesus Christ are still spiritually dead, groping for truth in the same disadvantaged reality that we read in those five points of the Gentiles. So people in our current culture, we turn everywhere. We turn to self-help books, spiritual practices, good vibes, positive messages of encouragement, but many of these are just dead-end paths that fail to deliver. So what's our solution? Moving along in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So we were far off in the sense that we were dead, completely, utterly separated from God and his people, and without hope, as we have just described. We were in a bad position. But now in Christ Jesus, this miraculous work of God and our union with Christ, it's just beyond comprehension. So let us reflect on the words of Paul in Ephesians 2, 4 through 6. And I'll read it. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places with Christ. This is just simply amazing grace on display. 
And I could shut my notes. We could end right here and just enter into worship. That, that is such a powerful message to see how far removed we were to how near we were brought. Lifted up to the heavenly places in Christ, with Christ. Amazing. But there's more. There's more to cover here. So in 14, picking up, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So Christ is peace. Without him, there's no hope of unity, reconciliation, or peace. Yet, humanity in our broken and sinful state is still constantly seeking peace in our world through all kinds of means. I listed a few examples. Peace through maybe our governmental laws and our policies, negotiations, treaties, improved access to education, redistribution of resources, the richer helping the people who are less fortunate, and ironically, peace through war and strong military defense. Now, these things may be helpful or even necessary to restrain the evil in our world, but as James Montgomery Boyce points out in his commentary on Ephesians, peace is not found in these solutions because the problem is greater. We are at enmity with God. That is the true meaning of sin, that we are also inevitably at enmity with ourselves, one another, and in a certain sense, with the whole world. So in other words, if we're not right with God, we're not right with each other, and our world is in chaos, if we don't have God. So I want to do something that maybe is a little bit different and, and out of line, but um, just I think it'll be helpful for the overall purpose of today. So I want to focus in on this dividing wall of hostility. So many of you may be like me and have a very poor working knowledge of what the Jewish temple looked like and what the hierarchy was, and I had no really clue. So I'm going to help you guys get a better understanding. So I've got three lovely volunteers who, who are um, so kind to come up and help me out. I'm just going to have you walk up to the front here, and we're just going to do a little illustration to better bring home this point. All right. So come on up. I'm going to have you stand the closest to the altar here. And then you can stand right behind. So let's all stay on the same level here, and let's space out a little bit. So this is actually a good order here. So you guys can see how they're lined up, and this is intentional. So let's, let's put this in context. Say we're in the Jewish temple. Um, we're, we're here for worship. The the uh, table is going to represent the Holy of Holies, the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant is kept. But actually, we wouldn't be able to see it because there would be a six-inch thick material veil that's covering our access. Only the high priest, once a year after making a sacrifice for his family, could enter into that space because it was that holy. It was the symbolic place of God, the seat of God among humanity on the earth. So it was very restricted access. So that was a separate realm. Like I said, only the high priest is getting in there. So we have the veil. So we're not even seeing this. We can't even see this. The next order is the, the male Levitical priests. They can come a little closer than everybody else, but unless they're the high priest, they still can't gain full access to God. Right? Symbolically, the seat of God in the Holy of Holies. So next to the male priest would be just a Jewish male. They could be in the next closest position, but they couldn't enter as far as the priests. 
Beyond that would be any, any Jewish person, but that would be as far as any woman could go. Not, not to discriminate, but that would be as far as any woman could go in their culture. So that was your access point. You couldn't enter this stage, you couldn't enter this stage, and by no means could you enter there. So it gets worse, right? Paul is addressing the Gentiles here. So these people are, are separated by some distance, but they're on the same level of the temple. The Gentiles are hanging out. They have to take five steps down, away from where these people are. Then there's that dividing wall of hostility, a brick wall that's about five feet tall that has inscriptions. If, you're, if you pass and you're not a Jewish person, you could be sentenced to death if you cross this line. And then, if that wasn't enough, there's another set of steps. So the Gentiles are basically outside on the street corner there looking in as the Jewish people are worshiping in their system. So that's a nice representation physically of that distance and that hierarchy that took place in worship. So thank you very much. That illustrates my point very well. Thank you, guys. So I don't know if that was new for any of you, but that was new for me, to, to kind of think about it in that detail. So we, we're picking up in 15 through 16. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So in the Jewish system, ceremonial law separated the Jews and Gentiles, and worship to God was practiced through the sacrificial system and offerings as described in the Old Testament. So Christ's sacrifice on the cross, and this is important, don't miss this piece, and I might repeat it. Christ is both the ultimate high priest and the ultimate sacrifice to put a final end to the old sacrificial system. So Christ in his work completes and abolishes that old system. So now, access to God the Father through Christ, our only mediator, is now personal and immediate. Remember where we were. We were nowhere near God in the former system. We weren't allowed close at the penalty of death. So I think this is just incredible. So... Now that we have this personal and immediate access, without the need for the former sacrificial system, it's amazing grace on display. Upon Christ's death, maybe you remember this as we were talking and going through that illustration, maybe this popped up in your mind. So upon Christ's death on the cross, we see how that physical barrier in the temple that separated the holy place, where only the Levitical priests could be, In the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest could be once a year, that was supernaturally dismantled. In Matthew 27, 50 through 51a, we see, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So we see Christ's work is immediate. That access that was once so far and restricted is now direct. That, that, that is incredible. That is incredible. If we are honest with ourselves, though, do we take this access for granted? Whew. I mean, do we turn to our Father in prayer first when we are burdened with something like worry or shame or fear? Do we leave our burdens on the Christ of Christ? Or 
the cross of Christ, excuse me, or do we try to carry them in our own strength? Just reflect on that. We once had no access, now we have immediate access, direct access. Do we take advantage of that? Do we, do we build a relationship with our Father through Christ? So, as we talked about, all of those divisions in the temple, they have come to an abrupt end in Christ's victory over sin and death. The divisions between Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, male and female, or any other cause of division in humanity fade away in light of the unfathomable unity that exists when we are united in Christ by grace through faith. This reconciliation first to God and then to one another in Christ allows us to experience a level of fellowship and community that is foreign to the rest of the world. Those outside of this community could not understand this level of of unity. Let us pick up in 17 and 19. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So in his commentary, another gentleman, Francis um, Folkes, summarizes the implication of Christ's coming to Gentile and Jew. The coming of Christ meant that peace could be preached to those who were far off, the Gentiles, who previously had no hope and were without God in the world, and to those who were near, the Jews, who had the covenant of promise and belonged to the people of God. For both, this was peace with God, which both equally needed. Its consequence was peace in concord, one with the other as well. Gentile and Jew, though very different culturally and in religious practice, had the same fundamental problem of being separated from God and dead in sin. Christ alone is able to provide this access and to provide the reconciliation between God and man and opposing groups such as Gentile and Jew. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So those who are dead in sin, cut off, without hope, are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So this is just a beautiful picture of a new humanity, restored and redeemed. In Christ, we are a family. God is our Father. All right. So let us uh, conclude and land in 20 through 22. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So as we touched on in my introduction... And if, if your eyes are open, if your ears are open, none of this is news, right? We are living in a time where division in our world and church seem to be expanding rapidly with the move toward a more secular and a post-Christian society. And if we're honest, that can be discouraging, right? If, if we are Christians, that can be discouraging to see the world around us changing. 
So I made a list, and I'm sure you can add to it. I am discouraged with the infighting between Christians on social media. I am discouraged with the amount of church splits and new denominations that have occurred and been uh, formed throughout our history. I am discouraged at the lack of diversity in many of our churches in the United States on Sunday morning. I am discouraged by the shift toward liberal theology that denies or repackages core Christian beliefs and aligns more with cultural trends than with the Bible. I am discouraged by the abuse that has taken place in our churches across denominations. One denomination does not own the abuse issues. That's, that's been across denominations. I am discouraged when pastors are disqualified from ministry. I am discouraged by false gospels that have captivated wide audiences. I am sure that all of you could add to this list, but let us not fall into despair. We have a hope that is far greater than any discouragement that we can list. Our hope is in Jesus Christ, and that is the ultimate encouragement. I am encouraged to know that Christ is the cornerstone of the living body of the church. I am encouraged to know that both Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, male and female, all have access in one spirit to the Father through Christ. I am encouraged to know that we stand on a secure foundation of the teaching of the apostles and prophets, which has been preserved and handed down for us in Holy Scripture. I am encouraged that Christ continues to build and sustain his church. The example that I shared with you before my introduction, the church is still growing. Despite all these problems, despite sin, the church is still growing. I am encouraged by the scene in Revelation 7, 9. And I know I talk fast and read fast. I'm going to try to read this slowly because I want you to paint a picture in your mind. This is so beautiful. So this is from Revelation 7, verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 